Hello and welcome back. I'm here today with Calvin Robinson. Calvin, thank you very much for coming on the show. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Douglas. Now, for those of you who don't know, Calvin is a teacher. He teaches computer science, but he's a rather well-known teacher because Calvin has actually expressed some rather interesting views, not only about the way history is taught and our attitude towards our past as a country is, is taught in our schools. Calvin, um, it's the start of Black History Month, and you've written some really interesting things um, in some national newspapers about the way we teach young people about their history and their past. Would you like to uh, share, share some of your thoughts and your views with the audience, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I don't understand why we have a Black History Month. What is the purpose of that? Because in schools, we teach British history, uh, because that's where we live. We teach European history because they're our neighbours. And then we teach world history, because we're all part of that. We don't really separate the curriculum down to race. There is no white history. So I don't understand why there's a Black history. And also, if we're going to address history based on race, why is there no Chinese History Month? Where's the Indian History Month, uh, the Arabic History Month? It makes completely, it's nonsense. But if we're going to do it, and most schools feel like they have to, especially in the current climate where, you know, race relations are a topic on everyone's mind. Um, why do they feel they have to? Is it, is it a requirement by, by local councils? Is it, is it a sort of um, a, a, a cultural cringe they feel they have to pay deference to? Why, why do they feel they have to do it? I'd say it's the latter, but especially this year more than any other year because of the whole Black Lives Matter issue. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of schools have been doing things because they want to be seen to be doing things rather than them thinking it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're seeing lots of resources that are completely inappropriate for schools. Um, on, you know, TES, for example, Times Educational Supplement is the biggest website where teachers go to download lessons. They go to download the resources they, they're going to teach. And you go on that website, I ask anyone who's watching this, go on the website, have a look. 90% of the resources are steeped in critical race theory. It's very political. It's very, very laden with this whole white privilege mentality, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But the whole point that I'm, I'm saying this is because Black History Month is being taught in a very political way. And it's something that I don't think needs to be taught anyway. But if we are going to address these issues embed them in the curriculum and I think if we look at the national curriculum for history it's actually it's very broad it's very balanced it contains you know things about the empire colonialism migration it's got all these topics in there so I'm not sure why we need a discrete month around it so you're saying if, if we're going to have it um, we should at least teach history honestly but you'd rather you'd rather not have it you'd rather actually tell the story about us as a country us as a society without sort of segmenting off one part of the population and, and giving them a, a particular month to do it. Right, it? absolutely that. So I, I've designed some resources, for example, so for schools that have to um, do something about it, they can pick up these resources and teach black history in a holistic way. So I've addressed, you know, Jamaican RAF pilots in World War II, but also Australian soldiers during World War II. So I've tried to make it more about the Commonwealth than about particular skin colors, because I, I just think that's so divisive. It's not helpful to anyone. I mean, as, as well as being a, a teacher, you're, you're a mixed race background, is that right? Yeah, yes, that's right. I've got a black father, a white mother. Uh -huh. um, and and I, I mean, I, when I was growing up in the 1980s and the 1990s, and in, until, until actually probably only a few years ago, I always assumed that the issue of, of race was becoming progressively less and less important. I, I, I just naturally assumed that, you know, um, the next generation would would um, 
care less about it than the previous one. And, and every decade, I assumed that race relations would, would, would improve. Um, I, I think many of us unconsciously subscribe to what you might call the, the, the sort of the Martin Luther King vision, which is that we would judge people, as he famously said, on the content of their character on the color of their skin. We're, we're seeing, I mean, do you feel we're seeing a, a re-racialization of a British society? Is, 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 that, is, that, is, that, is this part of it? Absolutely. You know, my grandfather came over here during Windrush uh, from my father's side. Um, he had a tough time. You know, it was an all-white majority town that he, he lived in. Um, he experienced a lot of racism, but he kind of carved a place for himself in the community. Mm -hmm. My father, you know, had less of a tough time, uh, still experienced some racism. But then when I grew up, during my childhood, mm -hmm. I had, you know, I had some experiences of racism, but nothing compared to what my father had or his father. Mm -hmm. And I think we have made progress. We've made a lot of progress and we don't celebrate that. You know, we don't, we don't look at our successes. We only look at our negatives. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to take that on board. But also, yes, we are, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had it spot on in that we need to be colorblind and just see people as people. Uh, see them as British or see them as, as you know, a wider community, but let's not break people down by the color of their skin because your skin color means nothing. It, what does it have to do with you? One of the great, I would say one of the great accomplishments of, of, of British culture and, and, and the, 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 the British achievements is, is to create a, a world in which people are judged as, as individuals. Now, Britain's not always lived up to that, um, there has, unfortunately, in this country, you know, there, there was in the in the past discrimination against um, formal discrimination by the state against you know different minority groups. Catholic emancipation only happened in 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 in, in the early nineteenth century. There was you know, all sorts of discrimination until very recently in law against certain groups. Women didn't have equality under the law until very recently, but. If you look back at history, I would have thought one of the things to actually do is to celebrate the fact that we have become a fairer, more, more egalitarian uh, country. And in, in a weird way, I think, not always, but in many ways, we've, we've sort of led the world in that. And it, it, Absolutely. it's extraordinary that we're now taught that actually we should ignore all of that and, and, and regard our story as a, a story of, of something to be ashamed of. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much to that. So, for example, you mentioned legislation there. You know, we are one of the most diverse, inclusive, uh, tolerant nations in the world. I say that all the time because I really mean it. But, you know, we've gone so far the other way now. We're overcompensating in our laws so that, you know, we've got positive action in the Equalities Act, which gets interpreted as positive discrimination. And I think that's bonkers to have that in our law. Um, and you, you mentioned, you know, we, we, we paved the way. The Slavery Abolition Act was a fantastic thing that the United Kingdom uh, implemented and kind of forced the rest of the world to follow suit. We were the ones who got rid of slavery. Yes, we had a part to play in it, and we should definitely recognize that. Mm -hmm. But we should also celebrate the fact that we, as a nation, uh, taught the world that it wasn't okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel very strongly as someone who's, who's sort of studied history that people need to be taught history honestly. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's a tendency, perhaps in the past, to oversimplify a, a, a nation's past glories. And I, I worry that now we're, we're going sort of to the other extreme, where we're, we're downplaying and over, glossing over significant achievements. You know, without question, I think an honest assessment of, of this country's history has to acknowledge the fact that you know, it's been a story of achievements and innovation. We were 
probably the first large society in the world to achieve a sustained increase in, in living standards. And contrary to what people are taught, this wasn't because of exploiting colonies or the slave trade. It was, it was because of the Industrial Revolution, because of a process of, of specialization and an exchange and mechanization. Uh, you know, this country pioneered the way in all sorts of ways in terms of technology, from penicillin to the jet engine, big advances in computing, obviously before that steam technology, um, pioneering um, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, but I, I think the point you make about almost a sort of being a moral pioneer, this is a country that you know, abolished the slave trade in, I think it was uh, 1807. Um, there are also some famous court cases from the late 18th century, which make it clear that the institution of slavery was not recognized in English common law. And, and indeed, you could say hadn't been recognized since at least the Middle Ages, if, if not before. I mean, the Middle Ages obviously had serfdom. But the institution of slavery never really existed in this country in the way that, that, that people sometimes like to pretend it did. Absolutely. You know, obviously, we spread parliamentary democracy around the world. And you mentioned more uh, recent successes like the World Wide Web. You know, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, a Brit. These are the things that we should celebrate, things that we can get behind that unite us as Brits, uh, rather than focusing on the negatives. And I think we, a lot of the negatives we actually import from America. You know, they've got a very different history over there with their African-American community. Uh, we, we didn't have that over here. People came over here by choice, like my grandparents from the Windrush generation. It was less of a slave trade mentality than like, what they had in America. So we can't address black history as a, as a topic like they do. And I don't know why we're importing it. Same with Black Lives Matter, you know, the whole defund the police, let's stop shooting our black people. Our police over here aren't shooting black people. You know? There was, there was a, a famous scene I saw on, on social media of a crowd in London of protesters saying, chanting to the police, um, hands up, don't shoot, which is a, a, a slogan they had obviously learned from America. But... It's absurd in, in, in a British context because those policemen weren't carrying guns. The, the police in London seldom carry guns around big um, airports and, 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 and the House of Commons. You might see a policeman with a gun, but the police in the part of London that I live in never carry guns. So, you know, the idea that the idea that protesters here would be copying what they see in America and replicating on the streets of, of London. I mean, I think it tells them, tells us more about about their influences rather than the, the actual reality of life in Britain or London in, in 2020. Um, have you, growing up in, in Britain, have you ever experienced what you might call a sort of excessively aggressive policing or have you ever been on the receiving end of officialdom and felt actually you were being singled out because of, because of your skin colour? So this, this is a difficult topic because Yes, I have. I have. I have experienced that in the past, but it's difficult to talk about without people jumping on the bandwagon and saying, well, that's because there's institutional racism. Mm -hmm. I really don't think there is institutional racism in this country. I think, you know, there are elements of racism that we still need to address, but that doesn't make this a racist country. Mm -hmm. I can think of plenty of examples where I've felt um, targeted because of my skin colour. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you add them all up, they're all, it's quite insignificant. To, I, I feel like I've had all the opportunities that everyone else in my class had uh, to make success of my life and do whatever the hell I wanted to. Um, I don't feel like I was oppressed. I don't think I was held back because of the color of my skin. It's wonderful to hear you talking so positively about it because obviously, you know, the invitation is issued at the moment to, to look at, at, at 
to look with great pessimism and to, to, to see ill intent and malevolence everywhere. And it's wonderful to hear you being so positive and saying, yes, you've, you've experienced one or two bad individuals and one or two unpleasant incidences, but actually this is a great country and it's a great society and it's a great world to live in and it's, most people are decent and most people are fundamentally good. That's a, that's a, that's a very uplifting message. Um, I think your core there that you mentioned intent, Douglas, I think a lot of people um, have this victimhood mentality. So if, if some, someone wrongs you, um, whether it's intentional or not, they, there's the assumption there that it's based on race. For example, you know, some, some black members of parliament would say, oh, someone thought I was the cleaner. And they, they would assume that that person is racist. Whereas I would assume that maybe they just didn't know who I was or they didn't recognize me. It's that, it, where is the assumption there? Whereas if someone is to call me an N-word or, or, or a Paki or something, then I would assume that they're being racist. I think we have to have uh, a bit of uh, generosity in our assumptions about people and what their intentions are as well. That, that's also really refreshing to you that you're saying actually we've got to not assume the worst about people and actually you know, honest mistakes happen and when there is a misunderstanding we mustn't naturally assume that there's some sort of malevolent in, intent. Um, I, I think that's I think that's a really important point. You know there's that very famous um, phrase um, I think it was Rodney King who was a victim of really overt police brutality in, in Los mm. Angeles in the 1990s. He was, he, was, he was set upon by some police officers and beaten and it was videoed and, and it, uh, I think the officers who were charged were acquitted which triggered some riots. He very famously said, um, why can't we all just get along? And I think the essence to getting along is to think the best about people um, and make that our default starting point until people actually do things which demonstrate that they have malevolent intent we, we should assume we should assume the best I, I i suspect that in the coming years we're going to have to really really try and teach a young generation to think the best of the fellow britons um, critical race theory on the other hand it invites people to not only think badly of other people based purely on the heritage of their their, their, their parents um, it also invites people not to think of themselves as individuals and to think of themselves as victims. Does, does, does this worry? I mean, you, you teach children in the classroom. Do you think it's a demotivating factor for young Britons growing up to see themselves as, as part of a collective rather than as an individual? Absolutely. I've worked in a lot of London schools, um, both as a teacher and as an education consultant. And I've seen this firsthand and it's very, very worrying in that, you know, it's all well-intentioned, well uh, but teachers will make excuses for black and minority ethnic children and have lower standards for them. And at the same time, teach them that, you know, you are oppressed. The white man has power over you. And, you know, you, you've got all these hurdles you need to get over. And if you keep telling someone that they're oppressed and keep telling someone that they're being held down, they start to believe it. And that's where this victimhood mentality comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't blame people with a victimhood mentality. I blame the people that are teaching it to them. Mm -hmm. What we should be doing in this country is saying, actually, we have, we, it's not completely meritocratic, but we do have equal opportunities here. You can become anything you want to become. If you work hard, keep your head down, you can do anything with your life. And I, I truly believe that. And I, I, to teach people that, you know, this is a racist society. I, I saw some really. I'm just looking at the stats. Yeah, I was. I was going to mention some. There were some stats published last week, weren't there, about percentages going to universities? Absolutely. So, I'm, in schools, for example, um, you know, we'll say that this is a racist institution. Education is racist in uh, the UK. But then look at the stats from the DfE, from the ONS. We'll see that Black African kids excel white British kids all throughout school. So through primary school, secondary school, and twice as likely to go to university. So, children of 
West African recent arrivals have better standards of academic achievement than white than white Britons. Yeah, that is, a, that is that, I mean that that is pretty extraordinary statistic. That that tells you a lot about the the, the driving ambition of those those families. I mean, I know I know a couple of um a couple of Nigerian um, parents here in London, and they they really do want the best for their kids, and they really do push their kids really really hard. That that seems to be reflected in in, in the data. Am I right in thinking that Indian kids, kids who are descended from um, parents of of an Indian background? I think I'm right in saying they're the highest achievers of, of all, is that right? Yeah, I think Bangladeshis come just above them, but Indians are definitely high as well. In fact, most immigrant families uh, tend to excel white British kids. And that comes down to that key word you mentioned, family. You know, it's, all the evidence suggests that a strong family unit at home provides a better environment of support for young people as they go through education and they, they tend to thrive in that environment whereas mm -hmm. you know we don't have an emphasis on family in the uk anymore we, we used to it used to be mm -hmm. a core part of our values mm -hmm. and now we're so progressive that we don't think families are important anymore talking about history for a second um, are there are there particular figures that stand out that you think we should be teaching as, as, as great sort of heroic national figures. Um, I mean, I know part of um, what Black History Month tries to do is to pick out some, some prominent black Britons and teach about those. Do you think that there are figures that we should look at as a country irrespective of, of their skin color, who we should say, irrespective of what, what our, our grandparents and great grandparents background, we as a, a country can unite behind in emulating? Uh, to some degree, you know, I mentioned Tim Berners-Lee earlier, a great invention of the world or world wide web. But at the same time, I think we're in danger of idolatry here. And I, I, as a Christian, I think if we want to look to people uh, to, to strive towards, we should look to the saints and we should look to great examples in our faith. I don't think we should put people up on pedestals because then we get into the dangerous situation that we're in now where people are trying to tear down statues because people don't quite meet up to their idea of perfection anymore but based on modern standards. That, that, it's, in, it's, really interesting. it's really interesting that you say that because so often when people are trying to create a narrative um, a, a, about a country, they will find key founding figures. In America, it's obviously sort of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And, and I, I, I suspect um, you know, um, Ronald Reagan in time will be seen as, as one of the US greats. In Britain, you've obviously got, you've got Churchill, you've got Gladstone. But as you rightly point out, um, you know, you don't need to do a great deal of research to find out that there were things that Winston Churchill said and did that were probably, well, that, that showed he was human. Um, um, and, and yeah, this, this idea of sort of hero worshipping, again, it's, it's probably not honest history. Honest history means, yes, you've got national icons and national heroes and heroines, but you see them you see them as products of their age and you, you, you know, you judge them according to the standards of their age rather than ours. Right. What, what do you think we can, what do you think we can do if, if we, you know, we're faced with this onslaught from a radical new left sort of woke intersectional critical race theory and call it what you like. It's, it, it was once something that just affected university campuses. It's now spilling over into the, into the workplace, it's it's infecting the classroom. What, what what should we do? What should we be doing about it? How can we counter it? 
well, I mean, it's controversial to say, but I love what President Trump did in America and just outlawed CLT. So, you know, critical race theory is the idea that white people are somehow privileged uh, naturally by the color of their skin and black people are somehow oppressed or held back again, based on the color of their skin. And that's it's kind of perpetuating the myth of uh, white supremacy, but from the far left instead of the far right. And, and it, people don't see the danger behind that. So I think we kind of need to say, look, this is a it's pseudoscience that's easily debunked, but also it's something that if you are going to teach it, teach about it, don't teach it directly. So, you know, address it, critique it, uh, challenge it. But by design, it, critical race theory can't be challenged because if you if you say you're not racist then you're unconsciously racist um so it's something we need to say has no place in education whatsoever uh, throughout school or academia uh, and we need to just get rid of it, this and say no it's not okay it's not acceptable but the same for all this unconscious bias training you know that our parliamentarians are doing it at the moment uh, some of them have stood up and said we don't want any part of it but the vast majority of them are going through it because they don't want to be seen as sexist or racist or you used a phrase earlier, you, you used the phrase positive discrimination. Now, to my way of thinking, there's nothing positive about discrimination. And discriminating in favour or against one group of people purely on the basis of you know, their skin colour, or, or you know, it's absurd and it's illogical, and I, I think it should be illegal. Um, do you think we could pass a law that would actually outlaw all kinds of discrimination made on the basis of of, of race. Um, by that I mean, you know, you couldn't, if you ran a public institution like the BBC, offer work placements to one minority group rather than another. You, you might be able to, you know, require people to have a particular language skill. You might be able to advertise for you know, a housing officer at a council who can speak Urdu, but you shouldn't be able to discriminate in favour of one group overtly and explicitly at the expense of another. Do you think that's that's something that we could we could legislate to tackle? Absolutely. And I'm not I'm not a fan of creating further legislation. I think what we need to do is deregulate what we already have and the Equalities Act needs to be repealed completely. Uh, you know, that we've got first of all the protected characteristics, which is what makes it so easy for uh, minority groups uh, ethnic minority groups to be supported, but so difficult for white working class Brits, for example, to be supported, which is why white working class boys are the most left behind in education. So get rid of protected characteristics, but also discrimination. And you're quite right that there's no such thing as positive discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination. You know, I would never want to get a job because of the color of my skin. I'd want to get it because I'm bloody good at what I do. Um, and I think people around me would resent me if I got a position based on the color of my skin and I would feel embarrassed. So why is that a thing? Let's not even have that. It's tokenism, you know, no quotas, no ratios, none of that stuff. Look at BBC jobs lately, you know, the, the first thing they mention is not merit, it's the, we, we are an environment looking for more uh, black and ethnic minority employees, et cetera, et cetera. It's always identity-based first and foremost. It's incredibly patronizing as well. I mean, I know lots of people who would make incredibly capable and talented employees of the BBC from all sorts of backgrounds. The idea that the BBC has to give someone an advantage, it, 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 it's actually incredibly condescending. I, I hope one day people who apply those policies are frankly embarrassed about it. It's, it's, it, it can't possibly be right. It's always misguided and well-intentioned, but, you know, the idea that, what is it, 
15% of the UK population is, is a minority ethnic, whereas on the BBC, uh, over 20% of the on-screen talent is minority ethnic. They're always overcompensating. They're always really trying to look diverse, but they don't understand what diversity means. We don't get any uh, diversity of thought and opinion on the BBC, do we? It's always more brown faces. And that to them, as long as you're a brown face and think the same way they do, you're fine. Um, I, I just wondered if we could, if we could sort of wrap up by, by talking a little bit about, about you know, what politically what, what, what might happen. I mean, the Labour Party, it seems to me, once stood up for ordinary blue collar working Britain, but they've been sort of hopelessly captured by this radical leftist agenda, so much so that their leader actually rather ludicrously took the knee in his parliamentary office. Um, quite why the leader of the British Labour Party felt the need to kneel on a carpet in Westminster um, in the way he did, I, 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 I do not know. And I, I think a lot, of, a lot of the sort of people who might once have voted Labour will be scratching their heads in, in puzzlement at that sort of rather odd um, virtue signalling. But what about, what about the, the Conservative Party? Um, I mean, the Conservative Party ought to understand about, you know, what, what national tradition and heritage and unity means. The, the Conservative Party has this great tradition of what you might call one nation conservatism, where it, it embraces the whole country and, and tries to you know, stand up for all Britons of all traditions. What, what, what do you think the Conservative Party needs to do? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I agree with you on Labour Party, you know, the subjugation, taking the knee, absolutely outrageous, terrible. And they're still using their peddling CRT and their messaging. So I think the Labour Party has left behind. Tories are not addressing this, this red wall that they've just taken. They can, they're also capitulating to the, the woke metropolitan liberal elites uh, with, with all the messaging that they're putting out at the moment as well. Uh, they're not addressing the culture wars. And we are at war here to, to protect British values, to protect British culture. And that, even just saying that, that will trigger so many people, but it shouldn't do. You know, the majority of people in this country, the silent majority, care about our culture, care about our values, and care, stands up for those values and our beliefs. We, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think, you know, the SDP are making good uh, inroads. I think Lawrence Fox's reclaim on me, uh, taking some of this common ground here, standing up for common sense uh, and the common good. And all of this is good, but Let's, I suppose let's see what happens. I don't have any faith at the moment in the Conservatives or the Labour Party to address the matters that really, the issues that really matter to normal folks. Okay, good. Well, Calvin, um, thank you so much for taking the time from your, your busy teaching diary to um, come and share your thoughts. I've, I've really enjoyed reading some of your, your pieces in, I think the Daily Telegraph had one, and I, I think I've seen some other quite high profile articles in the national press you've written. Please keep on keep on writing those. I, I think um, there must be millions of people around the country who find your your optimism and your clarity of thought and your your sense of sort of civic liberalism really you know inspiring and, and uplifting. And I, I think any 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 child fortunate enough to be in your classroom um, is a very lucky child indeed. Um, keep on um, keep on sharing your ideas and your thoughts with the rest of us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Calvin. Bye.